The following podcast is sponsored by Financial Sense Wealth Management. To learn more about our investment services, go to financialsense.com or give us a call at 888-486-3939. Apple's market cap crossing that incredible $2 trillion milestone comes just two years after Apple made history as America's first $1 trillion company. But let's just put Apple's market cap into a little perspective, shall we? It's now worth as much as nearly three Facebooks, about six Teslas, and more than eight and a half Disneys. U.S. GDP is what, $21 trillion? You're talking about a company that's now 9% of U.S. GDP in terms of numbers. That's pretty remarkable. And since they reported earnings, think about this. They probably added $400 billion to their market cap in, what is that, nine or ten trading days? That's bigger than all but probably 10 or 11 publicly traded companies out there. I'm speechless on how every single day tech goes up. I mean, I, I can't explain Tesla. I can't even explain Apple, and I own that one, right? Yeah, so Tesla's up 25% this week alone. 25% this week alone and 40% in the month of August. The strong have been getting stronger and bigger. The weak, weaker, and almost disappearing. And if you ask why, it has two elements to it. One is what's happening in the economy, who's allowed to reopen, who's not allowed to reopen. But also, if you're an investment grade issuer, you've been able to issue $1.4 trillion, a record for a year. The last time we saw that amount was in the whole of 2017. We've seen it in 2020 in just eight months at record low yields. If you're a small business, the Fed numbers show you that banks have tightened lending conditions on you. So here, easy access, people are throwing money at you. Here, very difficult to get access. So you've had a combination of things, and I'm really worried because this dispersion may be good for the stock market, may be good for national champions, but will have huge economic and social implications down the road. This is the Financial Sense News Hour. Now, here's the Financial Sense News Team. Stocks continue to power forward as more good news continues to move the markets higher. The S&P 500 notched its fourth consecutive gains, while the Dow pushed higher with major gains coming in Apple. Hard to believe this company is over $2 trillion in market cap. On Friday, it was reported existing home sales rose nearly 25% in July as mortgage rates continued to fall to record lows. Optimism is building in the markets that the worst of COVID may be behind us and the possibility we're getting closer to finding a vaccine. Hi, everyone. I'm Jim Poplava, and welcome to the Financial Sense News Hour. Joining me at the top of the hour will be Aaron Swinlin from DecisionPoint.com as we look at the S&P 500 powering forward, or more appropriately, the S&P 5, as the FANG stocks are really the momentum that is powering this market higher. Aaron is seeing a lot of divergences, which could be an early warning sign. Daniel DiMartino Booth will join me from Quill Research later on in the program as we look at deficits, money printing, and the differences between the economy and the markets. And finally, Chris Poplava and Chris Sheridan will be here with another edition of Smart Macro. But first, let's look at the drivers of this week's market with Ryan Poplava. Ryan? Well, thanks, Jim. There weren't any key macro news items this week, like uh, sweeping central bank policy or new fiscal policy changes to report. Uh, the market itself grabbed the headlines this week with new closing highs in the S&P 500 and the Nasdaq Composite. Year to date, the Nasdaq is up 26% and the S&P 500 is up 5.15%. And the Dow Jones Industrial is still down 2.13%. Uh, as far as investors are concerned, COVID-19 has been defeated at least in respect to the market correction in March caused by the shut-in of the economy. Often this week, declining issues were outpacing advancing issues, but due to the weighting of the mega-cap stocks, indices pushed higher. The FANG and mega-cap stocks continue to take the lion's share of gains this year, driving up the consumer discretionary information technology and the relatively new telecommunications sectors higher. This week, Apple continues to carry the tech sector on its back with its two trillion market cap. The company hit one trillion in August 2nd of 2018. Here we are two years later. 
at $2 trillion. Companies doubled. And that happened about Wednesday intraday when the price of the stock hit $467.77 a share. Friday closed higher at $497.40, up 70% for the year. Apple is the first company to hit both records. The underlying trend this week was a retreat back to defensive COVID-like areas, treasuries, mega cap stocks, technology, real estate, and out of value and cyclical areas that did so well last week off of uh, positive economic data for July. So a bit of the same tug of war we've been talking about, and that will likely persist until we get a vaccine that is in full distribution or Congress can compromise and pass another relief bill uh, with some reports this week that the Senate may introduce a smaller stimulus package. Walmart, Home Depot, Target, Lowe's, NVIDIA, and Deere beat earnings expectations, with many giving better guidance for the rest of the year. Concerning Walmart and Target, both have had very strong e-commerce results this year as a result of quarantine and stockpiling of essentials. Compared to the first quarter, demand appears to be leveling off on stockpiling, while online shopping momentum continues forward. While many of these stores incurred increased costs due to labor, more hiring and all of the cleaning and sanitizing that's necessary these days, the jump in overall ticket size more than offset the increase in costs. Walmart's gap operating margin improved 4.4%. It will likely be hard, however, for these stores to keep up on comparable sales as stimulus spending diminishes. However, it shows in this environment that retailers with scale, e-commerce, and logistics have a clear advantage over their smaller competitors. Thanks to an explosion in gaming during the pandemic and due to its growing data center business, NVIDIA's earnings surged 76% over a year ago and revenue jumped 50%. The data center revenue grew 167%, so triple digits, and NVIDIA's integration of its $7 billion acquisition at Mellanox was a big part of that, contributing about 30% to the growth of the business segment. Now, the CFO stated that gaming revenue is likely to surpass data center revenue in the third quarter due to early holiday sales and new consoles coming to the market. On the economic side of news this week, housing was a big winner. Uh, the NHB housing market index hit an all-time high of uh, 78 in August as builders see strong demand for single-family homes. Total housing starts surged 22%, uh, 22.6% in July, and building permits soared up 18.8%. The housing starts were mainly driven by multi-unit starts and permits, but single-unit permits were also very strong, up 17%. Now, existing home sales for July also did very well, up 24.7%. There's obviously very robust demand in all these areas of housing, with constraints currently to supply on existing homes, which are driving up prices and demand for more construction. The leading economic index was released this week. Those LEIs up 1.4% in July, the third straight monthly increase since it rolled over, I think, in February through April period. Uh, the three negatives this week were the Philadelphia Fed Index, which dropped to 17.2 from 24.1, the drop in the Empire State Manufacturing Survey in August to 2.7 from 17.2, so a big drop-off in manufacturing and the unfortunate climb in unemployment claims this previous week uh, by 135,000 to back up to 1.106 million for the week ending August 15th. We dropped below a million a couple of weeks ago in the, that week ending August 8th. So, uh, like I said, very unfortunate to see it come back. And uh, these three announcements helped keep a lid on cyclical sectors and weakened oil prices this week. Rig counts in the U.S., interestingly, pretty low. Uh, right now, 254 rigs in Northern America, down 662 rigs from a year ago, just to give you an idea. Uh, touching real quick on gold, the two-week correction from an all-time high continued this week as the dollar strengthened on the back of the federal Open Market Committee's minutes from last month's meeting. One specific note that reverberated here was the discussion that yield curve control would only provide a modest benefit to yields, and yields are already very low. And given that forward guidance right now is for rates to remain low for the next two years till 2022, 
Um, and the, the view is currently that guidance is credible. So the dollar rallied and gold corrected on the news. But that's it for this week. We covered quite a bit here. Earnings, uh, markets, stocks, and Apple's $2 trillion market cap. Next week will be interesting during the annual Jackson Hole Symposium, which is being held virtually this year, obviously. Uh, good thing to do there. Powell will speak on August 27th at about 9 10 in the morning. Um, so that will be uh, something we'll definitely want to cover and their view, which is looking probably further out. This is a socialist revolution. It's not just the United States. It's also you're seeing Trudeau in Canada calling for a complete new social order. You have the same thing taking place in Europe. You have rising separatist movements just about everywhere. This is part of an international movement to basically seize the government and force socialism in because it's collapsing. All the pensions that they promised all these people, there's no money there. They never saved it. I mean, so security, it's a, it's a Ponzi scheme. They take it from one generation to pay the next. People think that they were taking that money out of their paycheck and actually putting it in an account and saving it. They're not. So I basically see that economically, they don't have a prayer in hell of sustaining this system. If you want to listen to this full interview, just go to financialsense.com and click the subscribe button. Do you know how lower interest rates will impact your income if you're retired or about to retire? Make sure you're prepared. Work with Financial Sense Wealth Management to help you develop a plan that provides you with predictable income no matter what happens in the markets. Don't take chances with your future. Let us show you how to avoid falling interest rates and loss of income. Call Financial Sense Wealth Management now at 888-486-3939. Let's work together to create a better path to your financial future. Call 888-486-3939 today. Advisory services offered through Financial Sense Advisors, Inc., a registered investment advisor. Securities offered through Financial Sense Securities, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Both companies doing business as Financial Sense Wealth Management. Just when you think they can't go higher... That's exactly what they do. I'm talking about the stock market, whether you're looking at the S&P 500 in record territory or the NASDAQ itself. Where are we heading as we head into the fall? Let's get some insights. Joining me on the program is Aaron Swinlin from Decision Point. Aaron, I want to begin with sort of this little bit divergence that we're seeing between the S&P and the NASDAQ and the Dow stocks. Let's begin with that. I'd like to get your take, and then I'd like to kind of drill in and get into the weeds on the S&P. Okay. Well, we'll do our very best here. Yeah, it's uh, we did chat before the program, and we were talking about you know some of the issues going on uh, with uh, really uh, the FANG stocks that are taking up the majority of these indexes, and you know they are mostly in tech, and so we have seen not only a, a nice move. In the NASDAQ, I think, as part of that fleeing into technology, who knew that was going to be a defensive sector, right? So you're seeing a lot of that movement into that area, or you did. And then, of course, we've seen uh, a huge consolidation for that NASDAQ, but it's still certainly outperforming and has been the S&P. And, you know, honestly, like I said, the, the more I look at the sector rotation, that sector technology, at least in the environment that we're looking at now, has really become more of a defensive play than it used to be because now, you know, we keep talking about uh, virus plays, you know, or biotech plays, those types of uh, investments. So it, I think it's really interesting how this has all evolved this year. Uh, but ultimately, I would have to say with both the S&P uh, and the NASDAQ, I really I don't understand why they still are going up, you know, in some, in some cases. And it, it is kind of uh, confounding right now. But what I've found is that in order to really identify what's going on in the market, um, do my diamonds, which are, you know, I do 
pick uh, stocks for one of my reports, you know, all of those things. I, I really have found I have to be more of a technical analysis purist, you know, where I really stick to what's on the charts and try not to, you know, cloud my head with, with the economy and the things that are going on around us that really don't uh, play into a market going higher, you know, um, but even the technicals are starting to get a little bit weird. You know, I have all these negative divergences everywhere and the market should be going down. It should be going down. And, and yet we're still seeing this, uh, you know, floating higher. If you look at the S&P 500, it's up around 4%. We backed out uh, the top five tech stocks, which represent almost 25% of the market cap of the index. And the S&P is down for the year. You have another index that you follow, which is the S&P 500 unweighted. Uh, Tell our listeners what you found when you look at that chart. Well, I highly recommend if uh, you haven't looked at RSP, it is uh, the Invesco S&P 500 Equal Weight ETF. And boy, what a different look that chart has. You know, we've been making those big moves. We got to all-time highs. Uh, If you look at RSP, that is not the case. We've been in a short-term declining trend, hasn't come close to even challenging all-time highs. It really does paint that picture, as you were saying, when you take those big five out of the S&P 500, you know, you get a very different picture. And I think if you pull up RSP, that's an excellent, excellent example of what you're talking about. I think it was J.P. Morgan's head strategist said that, you know, whatever you thought and learned about fundamentals, either economics or finances, throw it out the window in this kind of market. Because, I mean, you have a company like Apple, which has now a $2 trillion, actually it's gone beyond $2 trillion market cap. This is a company that has gained $1 trillion in market cap in just uh, two years. I mean, its market cap is bigger than some of the GDP of the big uh, developed countries. So if you were to look at that fundamentally, you say, how can that be? Or you take a company like Tesla uh, and take a look at where that's at. But doesn't matter. The charts are telling you something different. Absolutely. It, it is really, like I said, very confounding. And I, I revisited that phrase and I wish I could uh, figure out who, who said it. But, you know, the, the market is not the economy and the economy isn't the market. And, you know, they always used to have such a really tight relationship. But now at this point, they've really broken apart from that. As you said, you have to you just mentioned that I, I need to stick and be a purist. Because if I watch the evening news, if I drive around and see all the businesses that are shut down, going out of business, uh, you know, uh, people not going to work, uh, economies uh, shut down. In fact, a large swath of the economy has been shut down. Then you look at the market and you, you, you try to compute. This doesn't make sense. But once again, if you're a technician, as you are, you look at the charts, you're, you have to stick with the charts. Do you find that hard sometimes when you, when you look at a chart and you're saying none of this makes sense, but the chart is telling me this is going higher? Well, I have to admit that I, even before this, have been more of a technical analysis purist. So it's not quite as hard for me. While I would follow the fundamentals, earnings in particular, uh, yields and dividends on stocks, you know, I was already paying more attention to the chart. And like I said, now I'm doing this diamonds report and I'm looking at short-term trades, which I didn't used to do. You know, I'm finding that there are those pockets of strength. Uh, you you see these charts; they look bullish, even though the market's going down. But it, they will go up. You know, strength uh, begets strength. So uh, charts are really helpful here. At the same time, I have to say though, some of the indicators, just like I said, they're they're just telling me that we should be expecting this uh, decline to happen. At, you know, a correction or at least a pullback of you know some degree. All these negative divergences, all of these things are going on. And, you know, earlier on in this market, the the crash, you know, in March and coming out of that, my indicators have been right on. But right now, they're confused. (laughs) So, because they seem confused, that, that definitely adds that difficulty in 
analysis, if you will. And I think, like I said, right now, there's just all of these outside factors that are pressing the market higher that wouldn't normally affect it. When you, as a technician, when you see widespread divergences, what does that tell you? I mean, in your gut, what does that tell you? Well, it tells me the market is going to top or it's going to act toppy. Or if, you know, we have this really strong bullish bias we have since March, you know, then maybe we're going to get some consolidation. But looking in history, you know, at those divergences when I've seen them prior. I mean, we had a serious one going into the crash in February, even before the virus really became an issue. We had the same thing happen in 2018. Our indicators gave us those negative divergences. So I see them and I have to think uh, decline. But at this point, I'm starting to think more in that consolidation a little bit of pullback just because the bullish bias is so strong right now. So you just have to go with it. And you just wonder if maybe what this is forecasting is maybe some turbulence as we head into October, because it's usually a month before the elections that the markets finally pay attention to the polls and the candidates. They basically ignore it until you're about a month away. And this year we have such wide divergence again between the philosophies of both candidates. I want to move on to another asset class that has been stellar performing, and that is gold, silver, the precious metals. Let's go there. And what are the charts telling you? All right. Well, I've obviously gold has hit a correction and it was really interesting to see it all happen at once the way it did, but it found support exactly where it needed to. It it hit the rising bottoms trend line coming out of that June low. It bounced off the 50-day EMA. It got back above the 2011 top. And, you know, we're seeing another pullback after a pretty swift rally. And I expect to see that, but we're still holding that 2011 top. I think if I lose that rising trend line and the, that uh, 2011 top, I will get bearish on gold. Right now, momentum is certainly not on its side. And then we do follow the sentiment for gold based on the premium and discounts on the closed-ended fund PHYS, the physical Sprott Physical Gold Trust. And we're still seeing some pretty significant discounts on that particular indicator, which tells me that you know, when you have discounts, that means that the sentiment is somewhat bearish. You know, we're not getting the buyers in to accommodate the amount of gold and silver that they're already holding in that closed end fund. So, you know, for a long time and continuing, we still are seeing those discounts. And that just gives Carl and I the sense that, you know, with that little bit of bearish sentiment still out there that a lot of individual investors haven't really discovered gold on this rally, amazingly enough, or that they just kept thinking, well, I, I can't get in now because it's gotten so high. But then we had that beautiful pullback, like I said, to the 50-day EMA and the rising trend and a nice uh, bolt out of it. Uh, we did pull back yesterday and it did. It hit right on that 2011 top and then went back up and closed above its 20-day EMA. So I'm still bullish on gold, and I still like the gold miners, although uh, they're a little bit uh, frustrating for me right now as well. But I, I still am a gold miner fan and a gold fan. Well, even Warren Buffett has discovered gold miners uh, putting a half a billion dollars into Barrick Gold. You know, Aaron, when you see, you know, one of the things that when you look at the gold market, it was gold that was doing well. Silver was lagging. The miners were lagging. Now you have gold, silver and the miners. They're all coming together and they're all in an uptrend. So does that tell you as a technician that this makes this more bullish. In other words, the trend is really a powerful trend now when you see all elements of the metals market moving at the same time. Absolutely. But I mean, we can't forget the dollar having its, you know, devastation, if you will, has certainly put the wind behind the back of gold. And even the gold miners, of course, they're, they get uh, some some uh, love because they're involved with gold and when gold goes up they do pretty well but they do have to uh, fight the winds of the market if you will 
And, you know, I've liked them for a while. I, I think that, like I said, I think they still look pretty good here. But it it is interesting. Uh, I mean, there's been lots of talk about Warren Buffett getting into gold when he's never done that before. I, I think gold has become in a time of uncertainty. Even though the market is going up, I think there are a lot of under-the-surface questions like we're talking about. Why is it it shouldn't be going up? So I think one of the places people are going is in gold and you know, that's, I'm going to go with it. It's been a really nice rally. I think it's pretty amazing. We made it over 2000. I remember the days when we were talking about making it to a thousand. That was like a big deal. Like we, (laughs) we were never going to get there. (laughs) Yeah. I can remember, gosh, uh, for what, almost two decades, gold was stuck between two and $300 an ounce. And then it finally broke out. And once again, that big uh, mark of a thousand that people were forecasting. And then, of course, it went way beyond that. And especially uh, between 2010 and 11, when what was it, 1400 to 1900 silver went from 19 to 50. So you kind of wonder if we can repeat that cycle again. Well, it sure is starting to look like it right now. And, and I think the, it, the reason we are seeing that move into gold number one like i said it's the prices are going up just because the dollar is going down but we are still seeing a lot of people in there and i think it's because of the uncertainty so given where we are right now uh, what would you be doing as an investor i mean you have these divergences that are telling you either we're going to consolidate or we're heading towards the top so as an investor what do you do Well, here's what I've been doing. Like I said, I have to publish uh, five stock picks three times a week. So, and I have to do that even, you know, I started this in January, so I had to do it even through February on the the way down. But what I found is there are still, as as we say, pockets of strength. There's still the rotation. There's going to be the time where, as we saw in February, we just everybody, you know, Uh, throwing the baby out with the bathwater. But that's, I I love that because then we start to look for those bargains. I mean, that's been probably the best part of having that crash in the March low is it's been really easy. But what I've been telling my investors, I think you still, uh, maybe you get a little bit more into cash. I know that I am, I'm like uh, 35% in cash right now. Might be moving up to 40, 45. Uh, But when it gets to a top like this and the market starts acting toppy and there's these negative divergences and there are a lot of signs that we could get a really bad decline or correction, what I've said is, you know, once you're in those stocks, start setting a trailing stop, you know, because the market still keeps going up. The stock goes up. It shouldn't, but it is. So I like to use that trick. I don't normally use them, but when it gets to a point like this where things are looking a little uncertain, I think that they're actually quite good because they accommodate upside and they protect you if you get that big drop, uh, that pullback or correction, and you get to hold on to some profit. But that's kind of what I've been telling my uh, subscribers of the Diamonds Report. And then, of course, I'm still presenting things that, you know, look at natural gas. We uh, talked about that to our subscribers and, and in our blogs back in like July 24th. So there, there are places that you can go. There's always going to be, you know, gold, we're saying, you know, usually that does well. The main thing is, is to find this, determine the rotation, where is the money going, and then start focusing in on the industry groups within. And that's what I've been doing. You know, again, truckers, they started to break out. Gold miners, I was on top of that pretty early because that was looking great. So there is always, uh, there are always spaces, and I'm certainly trying to find them for my subscribers, and we've been doing pretty well. So if anybody is interested in, in doing that, you can just go to our website, decisionpoint.com, and sign up for that free email list, and, and I'll get you the information so you can join us in the free trading room on Monday mornings. Okay, so as we close, give out that website one more time, Aaron. Absolutely. Decisionpoint.com. And like I said, you know, you can check out our products uh, just for your listeners. You know, if you use, if you want to try it out for a week, uh, just use the coupon code DP trial and that'll give you a free week of the bundle package if you want to check out our subscriptions. But just, you know, at least sign up for the free email list. I'll send you my free 
articles when they come out. And like I said, we'll send out the links to those free trading rooms on Mondays so that you can join us, see what we do. All right. Well, listen, Aaron, as always, thanks for joining us on the program. Stay safe and come back again. Absolutely. Can't wait. We're in the midst of a technological revolution in both biotech and infotech. And that's allowing us to do a few things differently. But originally, you would go through and you would code the virus and you would figure out whether or not you needed live virus, dead virus, or something else to trigger an immune response. And at every stage of the process, you would test it on animals, on people, on animals, on people, back and forth, uh, and getting approval from the FDA at every stage before you proceed. Because you don't want to develop a virus that actually makes the situation worse, which is actually, unfortunately, fairly common in vaccine development, uh, it took years. In fact, until a couple of years ago, the fastest we had ever gotten any vaccine was about six years. But with new data modeling and with the ability to do mRNA extractions, the five-year process has now been shortened down to one year or even less. If you want to listen to this full interview, just go to financialsense.com and click the subscribe button. Contact Financial Sense Wealth Management to create an investment strategy today. Call 888-486-3939. That's 888-486-3939. Advisory services offered through Financial Sense Advisors Incorporated, a registered investment advisor. Securities offered through Financial Sense Securities Incorporated, member FINRA, SIPC. Both companies doing business as Financial Sense Wealth Management. the day we're doing this interview, we have a milestone. Apple stock hit $2 trillion in market cap. The S&P is at an all-time record. What is this telling us about the economy? Is there another story behind it? Joining us on the program from Quill Research is Danielle DiMartino Booth. Danielle, you and I were talking just before we went on the air. There was an article in the Wall Street Journal, The Everything Bubble Isn't Everything. Let's talk about that because a lot of this looks very bubbly. I think what Tesla's P.E. ratios at 900 something. You have some evaluations on some of these stocks I've never seen. I never thought I'd see a trillion. That was a milestone. And in the day we're talking, Apple just hit two trillion. Are we in a bubble? Yes, I think that it is fairly indisputed that we're in a bubble. I, I looked at the example of Warren Buffett buying gold, mainly because his favored metric for gauging overvaluation, the market capitalization here domestically and worldwide is more than 100% of GDP. So when you look at this, here's one of the things I, I want to talk about within the index. The S&P just hit a, a record. The NASDAQ is at a record. If you look at some of the sectors within the S&P, they're not doing as well. I mean, I can think of two that stand out. One would be financials like the banks, and the other would be energy. And so you have this domination of the index by just virtue of their weighting that's driving a lot of the gains that we're seeing in the market could that be deceiving investors that things aren't as good as they appear? Well, I think the biggest danger for investors is that if, if, you, if you knock out the top five, and there's actually a new name for it, it's called the S&P 5. So just knock the two zeros off. If you, knock, if, if you net out the S&P 5 from the rest of the broad market, the S&P 500, then stocks are actually down 2.5% since the beginning of the year. The reason I bring this up is because investors are aware and they hear things like Apple's $2 trillion market cap. They understand that Microsoft and Amazon and Facebook and, and Alphabet, they understand that there are enormous influences on the market, but they don't think that they're getting as little diversification as they are by buying into a broad S&P 500 index fund because their exposure is so heavily concentrated in a handful of names. So we're in treacherous territory when it comes to, I think, your average Joe Q, Jane Q investor and their lack of diversification because of how dominant a handful of stocks are in what they own. 
You know, that's you, you bring up a real key point here. You know, you think of the S&P 500 versus the Dow 30. You've got 500 stocks, broad diversification. But really, you're talking about five stocks that are dominating the index and driving the returns. And that could be deceptive. Let's talk about something that is also driving these returns. I read some figure you probably have a better number of than I do. The government will print or spend $12 trillion this year or four times its annual revenue. How much of an influence is that having on the markets? It's almost impossible to quantify the effect that that is having. I stumbled across a great chart a few days ago. If you look at all of the recessions back to 1970, what they have in common is that disposable personal income tends to decline, which you would associate with the highest post-war unemployment rate that we've ever seen in the current recession, except for the fact that disposable income is up 32% over last year. That's how tremendous an influence this stimulus spending has had on the U.S.-driven 70% consumption economy. So it's impossible to discount. We're not seeing foreclosures. We're not seeing rental evictions. We're barely starting to see car repossessions. So the normal credit cycle is not unwinding as we'd normally see because disposable income has been so propped up by stimulus spending thus far. So it is a very, we're staring into something of a mirage. Yeah, we saw this uh, beginning in February. We were in the bond market as the economy weakened, credit spreads widened on corporate bonds, which is what you would expect in a recession. And we were buying and getting short-term bonds, getting great yields. And then all of a sudden, the Fed announced it was intervening in the corporate bond market and changed everything. They did indeed. And look, they've bought Apple bonds because Apple clearly needs help. <laughs> yeah, I, I have to laugh because, I mean, $200 billion in cash on Apple's balance sheet makes it one of the largest companies in the S&P just in cash. Uh, yes. And, and yes. It, the things that you read are just... They're hard to believe. Amazon's stock stock market capitalization in Tuesday's trading, Amazon's market capitalization increased more than Target Corporation's entire value. One day's delta is bigger than the than entire. Tesla's the same thing. Whatever Tesla's more valuable than every auto company in the world added up. We're we're witnessing history. I, I think until we see water under the bridge and we're looking back on this, we won't realize how ridiculous it is. You know, the thing that really strikes me, you, you mentioned uh, normally in a recession, income goes down. It's up 32 percent because of transfer payments and other things that the government's doing. The thing that really strikes me about this, all the stimulus is coming into the economy. And I look, Danielle, where I live, we have strip centers. We have a big mall. Everything's shut down. It's closed. So at the same time, the government's putting money into consumers' wallets. They are destroying businesses, whether it's service, some in manufacturing. I mean, it's okay for me to go to Walmart. I can go to Costco. I can go to Target. But these little retail shops in the strip center are all closed. I can't go there. That is exactly right. And yet the process of forbearance uh, is making it to where tenants don't have to pay their rent. You can only imagine how much landlords are choking right now and, and, and going bankrupt. In fact, we saw a huge mall operator uh, declare Chapter 11 uh, just this morning because the people who need to pay them rent, they're, they're under programs that protect them from having to do so, and yet there's no protection for the landlord. So this is a big mess. Yeah, I, I was just thinking, uh, you know, the, the news that was made last week or earlier this week with Berkshire Hathaway selling its financial stocks. Maybe one reason is, you know, you think of companies like Wells Fargo heavily involved in commercial real estate. Well, how are they doing if the landlords aren't getting their rent? Well, that's exactly right. And and something that I'm touching on this week in my weekly quill is the fact that smaller and mid-sized banks are even more exposed because they've taken on undue risks in recent years to try and compete and deal with compliance costs. So they're even more exposed to the strip centers that you mentioned that are vacant largely. 
The other thing that uh, strikes me, you know, we started out the year, we were looking very good. If you go back to January, the economy, the the unemployment rate, uh, every economic metric was looking good. And then we had COVID. And then all of a sudden, we got hit with these riots. And I mean, you turn on the evening news. I, I have friends for the first time in L.A., will not go out at night, and one of them just bought a gun for the first time. So when you see a lot of this going on in cities like this, Daniel, how much of that has an impact on consumer psychology and sentiment? Well, it's especially going to to affect cities like Chicago, which continue to rage. Uh, and there's going to be reticence on top of kind of this, this dissipating fear of, of going outside, but there's going to be reticence on top of that because you fear for security. So, you know, the trend towards online shopping, we've seen just in the past year, online shopping has grown from 11% to 16% of total retail sales. Some of that comes down to fear of COVID and some of it comes down to fear of going out there. Yeah, you just kind of wonder, even if they get a vaccine, let's say in the first quarter of next year, they've got a vaccine or they have some kind of drug that cures this. You just kind of wonder how safe you're going to feel and what are shopping malls going to look like? The big shopping mall just north of where I live, Penny's is bankrupt, Sears is bankrupt. Um, And what do the malls do? I mean, the whole idea behind these super malls is you have these anchor tenants, you know, your your Nordstrom's, your Sears, your Pennies. They drive traffic into the mall also for these smaller retailers. Well, what happens if the big guys are gone? That's exactly right. And that's why you're seeing what I called, uh, what, what I wrote about last week was the, the trickle down damage to the, to the small business sector. Once you have a big company go, then the damage from that big company going or the tenant closing stores, and you're noticing that more retail uh, chapter 11 filings are not restructurings as we would think about them from business school, but rather liquidations. Steinmark uh, files chapter 11 to take one example and announces they're closing all 300 of their stores. Any strip center where Steinmart used to be the, the, the main tenant, all of the, the, the shoe supply places, the, the, the cupcake company, the, the, the small businesses, they'll all, be, uh, they'll all be collateral damage from that, if you will. And that's why we're seeing small business bankruptcies and small business closures spiking. You kind of wonder what social life and what the shape of the economy is going to look like when we come out of this. If, you know, a lot of businesses are destroyed, the small shops and even the big tenant uh, stores like your J.C. Penney's or Sears or any of those, and then also the number of restaurants that will be closed down. Are you going to feel real comfortable by going to a gym or a movie theater, even if they come out with a vaccine? That's a good question, because depending on the poll, only a third to 40 percent of Americans say that they'll be vaccinated. So the last thing I want to do is be sitting in a, in a dark theater with somebody behind me coughing who hasn't taken a vaccine. So the prospects for these over leveraged movie chains are just they're difficult. They're difficult to even figure out. And the flip side of it is I don't want to have to go to some chain restaurant. I like my small town restaurants. But a recent Yahoo interview that was published just two days ago, um, one one of the biggest restaurateurs in New York was saying that if this continues, if there's not any relief for small independent restaurants that he anticipates 85 percent will be closing. I just can't even wrap my head around that number. It's such a big number. And they're huge employers. Yeah, I was talking to the head of the hotel association. They need about 65% occupancy rate to break even. And he said they were at 46%. And when the summer vacation season's over, they rely on business travel in conventions. I mean, how many people are going to be going to conventions in October? I just don't see that happening. This is a huge part of my income that you're talking about here. I, I, I make some of my income based on my speaking engagements. Um, but every single conference that I've got all the way into the fall has been canceled. They keep postponing and pushing them out because there's simply not enough safety. And there's a patchwork of regulations that have been assigned to a lot of these uh, to a lot to, to different states and whether or not travelers can come in from different places or not. And that has been a, that's been a severe impediment to the conference and convention industry. Yeah, you just kind of wonder, is these governments shut down, put people out of business, but at the same time, they're shoveling money in people's hands. What are your views about the inflationary impact of doing this? 
Well, I'm not sure if you can say that it's going to be inflationary per se, if that's the real risk, because the the stimulus money that is going into households' hands, 100% of it tends to go into the hands of people who will spend every last dime of it and basically on necessities. So that's that's a good thing because food inflation is still up 4% year over year and gas prices are coming back. So as far as truly inflationary, my bigger concern is stagflation in that input costs have increased for many different types of of companies, and yet pricing power is not there to pass along the increased prices to, to, to the end users, to the customers. So given this kind of scenario, and somebody once said, uh, I just heard this last week, throw the fundamentals about everything you've learned out the window. I don't know if we can completely do that. But what do investors do given where we are today? Well, it's, you know, this this is probably the most difficult investing environment that I've ever seen. I mean, I, I go to sleep at night hugging my municipal bonds that haven't been called yet. Because it's so inexpensive to to, to refinance for, for a lot of the municipal bonds I own, at least, which, which are money good. Uh, so th- this is, I understand the fear of missing out and the need to be exposed to the stock market. But who jumps in after an 11-year rally? I mean, that's really what you're talking about. So, uh, you know, in, in this kind of an environment, you should really be contrarian in your thinking. Everybody's saying cash is trash. Well, if that's what everybody's saying, then I don't necessarily think that cash is trash. And, you know, I've done well over the years with my long maturity treasuries as as low as yields are. It's another difficult entry point, but even commodities have come back in a pretty big way and gold and precious metals. So entry points right now are very, very tricky business. So again, I, I hate to use a cliche and say you're better off having dry powder, but sometimes you are better off having dry powder. Not a bad concept. Well, listen, Danielle, as we close, if our listeners would like to follow the work that you do, tell them about your website and your newsletter. Uh, Please come visit at quillintelligence.com. We're actually offering a free week of the Daily Feather right now. So uh, we'd love to have you sign up and get a flavor for the, the type of unbiased and apolitical research that we put out every trading day of the week. And if you're bored, of course, follow me on Twitter at Demartino Booth. Don't leave your retirement up to chance. Contact Financial Sense Wealth Management at 888-486-3939 or email us at grow at financialsense.com. Welcome, everyone, to this week's edition of Smart Macro. Joining us today is Chief Investment Officer for Financial Sense Wealth Management, Chris Paplava. So, Chris, I was looking at some very interesting statistics this week. As many of us now know, Apple has passed the $2 trillion market cap. That means that it is now just about 10% of the entire U.S. GDP. One company comprises 10% of U.S. GDP. That is just staggering. (laughs) So, Chris, let's start there talking about the crazy environment that we now are in where Tesla's P.E. ratio is a thousand price to earnings. Unbelievable amount of debt issuance and money printing, particularly by the large corporations able to issue debt at virtually nothing. While small businesses, of course, have very high lending standards and are not able to take advantage of that. So we see the dichotomy there as well. So kick things off for us and let us know as a financial sense wealth management's chief investment officer, how are you navigating this crazy environment that we find ourselves today? You know, it, it certainly is getting a little bit nutty out there. Uh, one of my favorite technicians, uh, John Krinsky, who we have on the show, he put out a, a piece today just kind of looking at the current situation compared to 2000. And, I, and you know, I wanted to kind of go through some of his statistics because I think it's pretty eye-opening. Uh, he said in 2000, this is looking at the NASDAQ uh, cap weight. Uh, in 2000, the top three names of the NASDAQ made up 21% of the index. Now the top three make up nearly 36% of the index. Uh, Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, Facebook, Google, Tesla, they equal 50% of the NASDAQ. 
or equivalent to the bottom 96 names. Uh, it's pretty staggering when you think about it. Um, he did highlight, though, uh, that even though they're basically, you know, those names are the index, that there's still some good uh, breath under the surface for the NASDAQ. You know, things are still fairly healthy. So it's not as if only those names are working. There's lots of other tech names that are, are doing well or even having higher performance. Uh, and, and speaking of Apple, he noted a lot of stats that, uh, to me, are worrisome uh, regarding Apple. Uh, he said that Apple is 54% above its 200-day moving average, which is seen as a long-term moving average. That's the widest since the October 2007 market top. He also pointed out Apple's 20-day rate of change is over 30%. And the last time we saw that was coming in April 2009 after a major bear market bottom which is obviously not what we have right now. The market's been running for a long time. So it, you know, to me, it does seem like this type of momentum in Apple is not sustainable. Uh, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if Apple consolidates for a couple of months here or even pulls in sharply. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of this is heading into Apple's uh, keynote speech uh, next month where they go over some of their new products. So I think a lot of this good news is being built into the price. So I think it could be a case of buy the rumor, sell the news. Uh, essentially, um, you know, a lot of what Apple has going in the works, which is very positive for the company, uh, is being discounted today's price. So I uh, would not be surprised to see Apple cool off over the coming months, which could weigh on the market given its size. Uh, it's it's huge. So I do think we're due for a pause in the market. You know, looking at market breadth, I am seeing some divergences in terms of moving averages or stocks above moving averages or new highs, new lows. Uh, market's still healthy, but I do think it's overdue for some kind of a digestion and would not be surprised if we see that in the coming weeks here. One thing that you were pointing out in uh, some charts that you sent out in this week's investment meeting was looking at an inflection point in interest rates and how important that this is when we think about the market outlook. If you would mind, tell our audience a little bit about that. In general, interest rates tend to move in concert with uh, economic activity. So when manufacturing activity falls, interest rates fall. And when manufacturing activity picks up, interest rates pick up. And, you know, one of the things about this crazy world that we're living in is we have to kind of look at other factors besides fundamentals um, or economic factors to kind of gauge interest rates, currency movements, and even the stock market. Um, as an example of that, one of the things that uh, going into late 2017, early 2018, based on my analysis, I was predicting a peak in global economic activity. And if you remember, one of the, the big themes that we saw in 2017 was um, probably the strongest global synchronized growth that we had seen in quite some time. Virtually every country was expanding and growing at the same time. Everyone was virtually participating. It wasn't just you know the United States or Europe. Um, it was really the whole uh, global economy. But to me, from what I saw, that was kind of coming to a peak there at the end of 17. And uh, while the U.S. continued to plow forward in 2018, the rest of the world did peak. And we kept going forward because of Trump's tax stimulus. Um, so essentially what I was predicting for clients was that going into 2018, with the peak in economic activity, we would see interest rates also peak. But in fact, we saw just the opposite. If you uh, can look at the J.P. Morgan Global Manufacturing uh, Index, that did peak uh, late 2017 uh, into January of 2018. But if you look at the 10-year Treasury, 10-year Treasury yields were roughly around 2.4% going into 2018. And in the first quarter, they spiked to almost 3% and continue heading higher despite economic activity plunging. And what really was the, the driving force of this was while global activity was falling, U.S. economic activity was holding up. But I think even more than that, partly what played into this was the record amount of Treasury debt issuance that was being issued by the U.S. Treasury due to the Trump tax stimulus plan, and as the, which essentially widened the budget deficit. So if you think of just the law of supply and demand, the more supply, prices fall, less supply, prices rise. And with a record issuance or supply of treasuries, 
the price of bonds were falling, which meant that interest rates were rising. And this was contrary to what I was expecting to happen. And it really highlights how essentially what uh, is happening on the fiscal side can really impact things in terms of just the normal amount of supply of of, uh, U.S. Treasury debt issuance. And so it really wasn't until... U.S. economic activity was beginning to peak in the fall of 2018 that we saw interest rates begin to recede. And uh, even though debt issuance was still going up, it was U.S. activity plus global activity uh, that finally kind of helped to pull things down. Okay, so what is that telling you about the outlook currently? Well, right now, essentially, as I mentioned, when interest rates uh, or when economic activity rises, you would expect interest rates to rise. And then on the supply uh, demand side of the equation, if supply of debt was increasing, we would also expect interest rates to rise. So if you look at economic activity globally, that bottomed in April. Since April and the initial plunge that we saw from the coronavirus, we've seen economic activity almost return back to pre-COVID levels. So we've seen a pretty big recovery there in global manufacturing. Also, we've seen a record issuance of treasury debt, um, something that we haven't, to the likes we haven't seen in decades, if ever. And so we have rising supply and rising economic activity. Both of these factors should be pushing interest rates higher. Uh, but interest rates have effectively, on long-term interest rates, have stayed relatively um, calm, have gone more or less sideways since March. In my opinion, I think there's building pressure for interest rates to rise in the coming weeks and months here. Well, it's interesting because we were talking about last week how when you look under the hood, inflation is actually quite a bit higher than what the official statistics are showing, especially in light of COVID. So perhaps that's part of this story about interest rates now reflecting merging signs of inflation or at least picking up what maybe the official statistics have yet to pick up. I think you're right. I think there is rising inflationary pressures that are building. Uh, there's other factors, too. Uh, you know, one of the things that you and I have been talking about for the last several months here is my expectation that we're entering probably a U.S. dollar bear market, which to me is partly why precious metals have really started to uh, perform well this year. And I think we're getting close to that first leg down in the dollar. Uh, I do expect a counter trend move uh, in the dollar, given how oversold it is. But if you think about it from a U.S. perspective, a falling dollar tends to lead to rising import inflation. We also tend to see a rise in commodity prices with the weak dollar. So uh, that would be uh, putting pressure on manufacturers with commodity inputs uh, in terms of um, plastics and so forth. So I do think uh, a weak dollar could also begin to put more fuel to that rising inflationary push that could see inflation surprise on the upside. Uh, The reason why this is significant is I do think all of this could put pressure on interest rates in, uh, to rise later this year. And when you look at, for example, in terms of portfolios and how this can impact things, a lot of people really don't think about the risk in fixed income because it, really since the 1980s, we've been dealing with a long-term decline in interest rates. So most people are really, they haven't seen what can potentially be the volatility or even losses in fixed income over certain time periods when interest rates rise. And when you look at the, the basically the bond benchmark is the Bloomberg Barclays uh, index. And interest rate risk, really, if you think about it, a bond is riskier the longer the maturity is, because essentially if interest rates rise, you're kind of discounting that over a longer time period. So the um, longer the maturity of your bond portfolio, the more interest rate risk you have. And that's measured in years. And if you look at the bond benchmark, the duration of that portfolio is coming in at just under six years. So that is the highest duration we have seen all the way going back to the early 90s. So if interest rates rise, this could really start to hurt the bond benchmark, which so many people do benchmark too. And uh, this is why in our firm, I think this is where we can add some alpha. Earlier this year, we were fortunate enough to buy a bunch of corporate bonds in March when they were selling off. But for new clients, there's no more yield. There's no more yield in uh, corporate bonds as the Fed has gone in and effectively taken away the value. And so we're having to get a little bit creative and looking at other areas like convertible bonds, which we think would be a beneficiary of 
all the asset or all the money printing by the Fed pushing the equity values higher, as we've seen with other um, instances of QE. So we've done that. We're possibly looking at uh, f- um, foreign bonds, denominated uh, foreign currency. But I think we, you know, you have to get creative or keep your maturity of your existing bonds short if interest rates start to rise. But there's not just implications for the bond market. There's actually a lot of implications in terms of the stock market if we do start to see interest rates rise and economic activity continue to build uh, and improve. You know, Chris, I want to follow up with something we spoke with you two weeks ago in our last Smart Macro segment, and that was because we were seeing a huge push in the precious metal space. You had said that you thought it was getting a little overextended in the near term, still bullish, and obviously that this was an area we were positioned for clients. But you had said two weeks ago that because of how strong a move that we'd seen uh, really in the beginning of August, that uh, at this point we were hedging the precious metals exposure. Can you give us an update on where things stand there, how that turned out uh, in terms of hedging at that point from two weeks ago? Sure. Uh, What we do periodically is we rebalance our portfolios. So essentially by doing that, you're buying low and selling high. So when you have an asset in the portfolio that dramatically outperforms the other positions, it gets out of alignment in terms of what your initial allocation is. And so by rebalancing and selling that back to its original position, you're selling high and you're reallocating to areas of the portfolio that uh, essentially you're buying those assets lower. And two weeks ago, as we mentioned, uh, I was seeing a huge move in silver and gold. And so we rebalanced our our gold and silver position and trimmed those back to model weight, which uh, luckily we did that before that uh, massive drop early last week. However, I'm still not convinced that the corrective period is over. And so for some of our clients who have outsized gold and silver positions, we did do some hedging for them prior to the drop. Um, But we've kept those hedges on because, again, I do think... In the coming month, we're probably going to see a more little bit downside action in gold and silver. So still bullish long term. As I mentioned, I think the dollar is entering into a bear market or actually has entered into a bear market. But uh, I think there might be a better entry point for those with fresh capital to go into precious metals. All right. Well, any final thoughts for our audience as we close things out? Well, in in my opinion, I I think we're essentially kicked off a new business cycle. Um, Usually what you see is that near the end of a business cycle, the central banks are tightening monetary policy to cool the economy as you've kind of um, squeezed out all the spare capacity, whether that's uh, manufacturing capacity or the unemployment rate, um, labor capacity. Uh, Near the end of a cycle, you pretty much see low unemployment. And you see a high capacity utilization for manufacturing. And that's why the Fed is starting to tighten. Well, the Fed began to tighten all the way back in 2015 with the first rate hike under Ben Bernanke. And uh, Chairman Jerome Powell at the Fed really ramped that up in 2018, which is why we started to get into... um, since the last two years, we've had a lot of you know volatility in the market with the Fed uh, starting to tighten monetary policy. Well, you know we just went through a recession. It was a very acute one, uh, and we've gone from the Fed tightening a couple of years ago to the Fed easing. Interest rates are at zero, and the Fed is printing trillions of dollars. So when the Fed is at your back, not a headwind but a tailwind, that is when you're essentially in the early phase of the business cycle, and this is when risk assets tend to do well, stocks outperform bonds and uh, risky assets in general do well. And that's why, from our standpoint, you want to be at least at a neutral position in terms of whatever your risk curve is and moving more towards a maximum risk position. When you get into the latter phase of the business cycle when the Fed is tightening, that's when you want to dial it down to neutral. And when you see the uh, credit spreads or some other warning signs or shots across the bow, that's when you want to get into a defensive uh, posture below neutral. So right now, our clients are essentially in a neutral to slightly above neutral risk posture. But uh, as I mentioned, I do think with breath weakening that we're probably due for some kind of a pullback. And we're likely to use that pullback to increase our equity exposure for clients. Because again, I do think the Fed is an absolute tailwind. The uh, federal government is also a tailwind with fiscal stimulus. 
And so uh, that's why for us, we are moving from a neutral to a uh, more of an aggressive stance. And in the next phase, we're looking at adding a little bit more cyclical exposure. Cyclicals tend to outperform the S&P when the global economic activity is rising, which we have right now. But you haven't really seen the performance because, again, the market's been dominated by tech. So looking at cyclical sectors like industrials, materials, um, energy, financials, these are the areas I think will start to outperform later this year. And that's why for us, on a pullback, we've already started to allocate to these areas for our clients. We're going to be further allocating in that kind of environment ahead. Chris, as we close, would you mind telling our listeners some of the various services that we provide here at Financial Sense Wealth Management, either for individual investors, institutions, corporations, and the like? Sure. We provide a whole host of financial services. We provide financial planning, wealth management. We also do 401k servicing, consulting, and we also assist corporations in managing their cash balance, particularly with interest rates at 0%. And Chris, if any of our listeners would like to get in touch with our financial advisors, what would be the best way to do so? They can give us a call at 888-486-3939. Chris, it was a pleasure speaking with you again on Smart Macro. We look forward to speaking with you in another two weeks. Well, that concludes this week's edition of Financial Sense News Hour and our Smart Macro segment with Chris Paplava. Again, if you'd like to give him a call to discuss his investment outlook or to speak with any of our financial advisors, you can do so by giving us a call at 888-486-3939. We do have a weekday premium program as well called FS Insider. If you're not already a subscriber and you would like to listen to more of our podcasts during the week and can also be accessed on our website or through a podcast app of your choice on a mobile device. If you're not already a subscriber, just go to financialsense.com and hit the subscribe button. On behalf of Financial Sense News Hour, we hope you have a pleasant weekend. The Financial Sense News Hour is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be considered as a solicitation or offer to purchase or sell any securities. The investments, investment strategies, and investment philosophies discussed or presented on the News Hour each involve their own unique risk factors, which are not discussed on the show. Responses to listener inquiries are based on the personal opinions of the Financial Sense staff and do not take into account listener suitability, objectives, or risk tolerance. Financial Sense News Hour and its parent company shall not be liable for any financial losses that result from investing in any companies mentioned in Financial Sense or arising out of the use of any material on the News Hour. Be advised that you invest at your own risk.